Chapter 9, The Tree of Life. The Tree of Life is another phrase that has also taken on a whole new and very different meaning from its original. So this chapter endeavors to revive that life-giving, i.e. immortal understanding, which the demonic host, that is the defective angels, stole from us. After all, hasn't the search for immortality been the goal of religion, not to mention humanity, from the beginning? How ironic what mankind has been searching for from the beginning, that's i.e. immortality, was freely theirs, but they were coerced into rejecting it and have been searching to recover it ever since. With that in mind, residing in the Garden of Eden were two trees referenced, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. Interestingly, the Creator informed Adam and Eve if they ate or literally partook of the tree of life, they would have eternal life, that is, never die. Immortality was literally and freely theirs for the taking. On the other hand, if they chose to partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was literally a mix of both good and evil, they would surely die. Of course, we all know they foolishly chose the latter. As an aside, we must understand a piece of fruit does not impart good and evil knowledge. That knowledge can only come from a literal, intelligent being. Unfortunately, the Bible-based religions virtually across the board teach all humanity has been doomed to the fate, or the, which is death, that Adam and Eve chose. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. After all, what kind of a God punishes all the descendants of someone who made a foolish choice? Do the creators really want us all dead, that is, to die? What nonsense, as you'll see. We'll get into these scriptures showing the Bible-based religions' teachings uh, that we all have to die because of the foolish act of our ancient ancestors, but first let's ponder some rather obvious questions. Did our creators, who are called life in many places, really create us in their image to die? What a silly assessment. Before investigating those garden trees further, let's look at some scriptures clearly showing us how the creators feel about dying and the death of mankind, beginning with what Ezekiel tells us in chapter 18, verse 32. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says Yahweh our God. Therefore turn and live. Verse 31 of Ezekiel 18 adds more, even clarity to that concept of living versus dying. It says there, Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, such as disrespecting his name and Sabbath, and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? That scripture gives us clear reason why the Israelites and us are dying instead of having immortality. With that in mind, look at what the Creator presented to his people when they were led to Mount Sinai. This is in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I have set before you life and death. Choose life that you and your descendants may live i.e. not die. In fact, that's the same offer given Adam and Eve, but it prompts a $64,000 question. If the Israelites chose life, did that mean they had to die to receive their choice of life? How absurd. We can rest assured our loving creators do not play those kinds of mind games. On the other hand, what happens if people don't realize they have the option to choose life over death? Well, obviously they die. Life has to be chosen, just as Adam and Eve were advised. It was because they did not choose the tree of life that they died. That said, was that the only other time outside of Eden that people were offered life over death or immortality? 
The answer is a profound no. Skipping forward to the first century, we find the Hebrew Messiah telling the people in John 8:51, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, which is speaking for his father, he shall never see death. He goes on to reinforce that thought in verse 52, If anyone keeps my words, he shall never taste death. Again, his words were his father's, the Torah instructions. Getting back to the garden, it's imperative to understand, even though Genesis implies Adam and Eve ate fruit from a physical tree, that's not what other scriptures inform us. In Ezekiel 31, we have a metaphoric reference to the trees of Eden, showing those two trees were not physical trees at all, but living beings. We can readily ascertain this fact by the Creator's references to those trees, those garden trees in verse 10. It says there, Therefore, says Yahweh, because you have increased in height, which is this metaphoric tree in the garden of Yahweh, and set your top among the thick boughs, and your heart was lifted up in its height, therefore I will deliver you, that is the tree, into the hand of the mighty one of the nations, that he shall surely deal with you. I have driven you out of the garden for your wickedness. One thing's clear from this passage. This metaphoric tree was driven out of the garden of Yahweh, but how do you drive trees out of a garden? Trees are not mobile with legs, as some movies have depicted. For that matter, how can literal physical trees be wicked either? Speaking of wicked trees, what or who was that so-called tree of knowledge, that is, of good and evil? To understand, we need to assemble the scattered puzzle pieces sprinkled throughout the scriptures. It begins with a lament against this being or beast in Ezekiel 28 where this perfectly created, even in beauty, creature was being addressed. Not only was she a high-ranking angel, but also the crafty beast later lurking in the garden. Again, it was not a serpent. A snake is what it was cursed to become, or at least his prodigy. Revelation 12 relates just what that craftiest of all the beasts of the field was, a dragon. If you find that a difficult concept to wrap your mind around, you need only read Job 41. There we find a description of an invincible reptilian creature with terrible teeth, claws, wings, and even glowing red eyes. It also breathed smoke and fire, and like the one in the garden, it could talk. For anyone who accepts the Bible as authoritative text, to not believe in dragons is an oxymoron. Dragons, according to to not only legend, but the Bible, are and were quite real. In fact, a dragon skull and or skeleton was unearthed in South Dakota in the 1990s, dubbed the Dracorix Hogwartsia. The skull eerily looked exactly like the proverbial dragon. Getting back to the Ezekiel 28 account, verse 16 tells us this creature or angel was corrupted by its vanity, i.e. beauty, as well as its trading. Yes, it had a trading empire. After combining Ezekiel 28 with Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12, we understand this dragon conscripted a third of the angels to launch a war against Yahweh and his angels, which was led by Michael, the archangel. Then after destroying our solar system, its home planet Mars, or Tyre, as well as the earth, including mankind, if you see Jeremiah 4.23, Ezekiel 28.17 tells us she was then thrown to earth, which was mistranslated in the King James as ground. That's where we find her skulking in the garden, her veins seething with vengeance. 
Revenge, to quote a Star Trek Klingon, is a dish best served cold. Which is the reason she went after the apples of Creator's eye, Adam and Eve. She was quite literally the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was Eve and Adam choosing her way, that is to live, and her spirit of pride, which precedes destruction and or death, we're told, that gave her permission to imbue all humanity with her spirit of selfishness and pride, which, as is written, comes before destruction. Her proud spirit is a death sentence, while the Creator's spirit, the tree of life, is of humility, is immortality and eternal life. A very telling passage to keep in mind here is Revelation 12, 9 where it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent or Nahash of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. Do we really believe the whole world has been deceived? Let's look at a few scriptures that show us what choosing the dragon's life mix of good and evil actually means. We're given a major clue in 2 Corinthians 6.14, which is actually a quote from Isaiah 52. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has the anointed one, or Messiah, with Belial, or the devil? And what agreement has the temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are the temple, oh, for you are, where no unclean person or thing was allowed in that living temple of the living God. As he has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Yahweh. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will, shall be my sons and daughters, says Yahweh Almighty. The message is overwhelmingly clear. When the unclean touches the clean, the unclean always defiles the clean like Eve touching the dragon. The evil ones, knowing the scripture just we just read, knew all they had to do to keep mankind from immortality was to mix clean human living with unclean beliefs and behavior. If you mix a little poison with clean fresh water, you always end up with poison water, do you not? The clean water never decontaminates the poison, does it? Interestingly, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers all show that bringing into the temple or eating the unclean was an abomination. Yet Christianity teaches that our bodies are now that temple, but it's okay to bring any unclean thing one desires. Huh? 